Turn with me to John chapter 18. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take it, our gift to you. John chapter 18. Uh, Finish the sentence for me. There is nothing in our world, or there is nothing our world loves more than, or there's nothing our world craves more than, dot, dot, I was assuming you'd say March Madness, but neither of those are wrong. Though I love, I love a good donut. There is nothing our world craves. There's nothing our world loves more than, here's my, here's my little hypothesis for you. Than the feeling or the perception that they're in control. I've been thinking about this recently. I was reading a book. I was reading a part of a book. It was really technical book. I didn't really read all of it, to be quite honest. But, but in this book, it was, it was talking about the connection between anxiety and technology. And it was talking about that, uh, particularly in our world, but particularly in, in certain generations of people, that anxiety is just rampant. And that there, there's a rise of anxiety. And so this, this book was talking about that we saw the steepest rise in anxiety when collectively we decided that it was a really great idea to put a computer in our pockets. And I was thinking about this, and I think a lot of people were thinking about the sort of social scientists among our culture were trying to think through, what's the connection between anxiety and technology? And so I'm not the first one to come up with this. I'm stealing this in many ways. But, but really, when you think about it, one of the byproducts of the rise of technology, whatever technology is, is that it makes us feel like we're more in control. Uh, in some ways, there's, there's always been those type A personalities, you know, those firstborns, those control freaks. But, but what the iPhone has done, or what maybe social media has done, or what our sort of globalized economy has done, is it sort of made us all control freaks. Uh, I was talking to a friend recently, and he was talking about how, you know, he, he, he was thinking about his finances. And, and, you know, back in the day, we would trust our finances to the experts, right? So we had financial gurus, and we had people who had degrees in finance, and we said, you, here, you, you take our money and invest it. And I was talking to my friend, and I said, and he was like, I don't trust those experts anymore. And I was like, you flunked freshman math. And he's like, doesn't matter. I can figure out the stock market better than them. And instantly I knew what he was talking about, right? He's like, I don't want other people to mess with my money. I need to be in control of the destiny of my money. Or I was thinking, my my son the other day, he was, uh, there was a game. His favorite team was playing and he didn't get to watch it. And he just, without, without even like cracking a smile, he looked me straight in the face and said, because they lost. And he said, if I had only watched them, they would have won. And I remember just thinking, because for the ironic, the, 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 I stepped back and I was like, yeah, that's wrong. Um, but, but I didn't even think about it for a second. Because I was just thinking, like, we just so desperately want to be in control. Or we so desperately want the perception that we are in control. We love being in control. I think that's what makes parenting so hard. 
I think that's what makes marriage so hard. I think if you're in, if you're in elementary school, if you're in middle school, if you're in high, high school, living with your parents, this is what makes it so difficult living in your parents' home. Because they are in control. Or they're demanding that they're in control. That feeling of not being in control and wanting so desperately to be in control breeds frustration, anxiety, fears, bitterness, jealousy. We could go on and on and on. And yet, we all know deep down, we're sort of not in control. And even in our society, our society knows that they are not in control. And so we have these sort of trite sayings, don't we? We, we say things like, oh, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or, you know, this is March Madness. This is like, like my favorite season sport-wise. And so we, we say things like, oh, the, the ball just didn't bounce your way. We'll get them next year, right? Right? We say these sorts of things to kind of help us to step back and make sense of this world and kind of help our hearts and our souls in the reality that we're kind of not in control. There, there are just things that are going on in the world that are beyond us. Today, we come to a text all about control. We come to John 17, or John 18, excuse me. And John 18 comes right after the upper room discourse. So you had from basically chapter 13 and 14 all the way to chapter 17, you had Jesus instructing and teaching his disciples in this upper room. And then in chapter 17, he prays for his disciples. And now chapter 18, we kind of pick up the story where it left off in chapter 13. Uh, chapter 18, it's a bigger text. We're going to look at all of it. But there is three movements, three scene changes. Maybe you've seen a play and there's like a scene change. Well, in John chapter 18, there are three scene changes. So in verse 1, we begin in the garden. Then in verse 13, we go to a courtroom. And then we move, the last scene, verse 28, we move to a, we'll just call it an embassy. And in each of these settings, in the movement of these settings, we see Jesus perfectly perfectly in control of events. And I think as we encounter this story, as we read this story, as we sort of navigate the story, we're going to realize that the true goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is perfectly in control, even when we are not. So the big idea that's on the screen behind me is going to be this this morning. This is kind of what this text is driving towards. You really can't stop God's plan, particularly his redemptive plan. You can be a part of it. The question for us this morning is, do you want to be a part of it? So let's look at the first 12 verses of chapter 18. Read read along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew that that place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with the lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, 
knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words that he, was, that he had spoken. Of those whom he gave me, I have lost none. No, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. We'll stop there. So go back to verse 1. Jesus was teaching in this upper room, and then he makes his way, and he lands in a garden. And there we find Judas, who left earlier in chapter 13. He, he, he left to go betray Jesus. He, he rounds up various men. He knew exactly where Jesus was going to be, wasn't he? Didn't he? I mean, Judas is an insider in that sense, and so he knew Jesus likes to hang out in this garden, so he, he grabs these soldiers, and he brings them right to Jesus. And it looks like, in one sense, that Jesus, ah, oh, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Or, or Jesus, I mean, he, 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 he should have just run away, or if he was running away, he was not very good at being a fugitive on the run. But verse 4 really dispels that notion, doesn't it? Far from running away, Jesus was running toward, right? Verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus came forward. Jesus has been detailing the plan. He's been explaining the plan. He's been pretty particular about the plan, what was going to happen to Jesus. Jesus was going to be lifted up. He was going to die. And yet... He was not running from that plan. And we see it right here. He steps forward on God's redemptive plan and he steps, not just submitting to the plan, he steps forward and says, knowing all the various details, he steps forward. He's perfectly in control of the situation. It sort of looks like Judas is. In a moment, it's going to look like Peter is or the soldiers are, but really the person who's in control of the situation is none other than Jesus. With no hint of fear, Jesus says, who, who are you looking for? Who do you seek? And remember, it's dark, it's night, they've got torches, and it's going to be a few years before electricity is invented. So they're like looking around like, right? And so they have like a, think of it, they have like a search warrant, or they have an arrest warrant. And so Jesus is like, who are you seeking? And they're like, uh, Jesus. Like, that, that's the arrest warrant. And then Jesus says, it's me. Jesus says, I am he. And did you notice that when Jesus says, I am he, they fell back? Oh, I was at like a dinner party last night and this, oh, this woman was telling the story that uh, recently, a few years ago, she was driving and uh, they were at a stop uh, light and another car pulled up next to them and motioned to roll down the window. This person was lost and they said, hey, I'm lost, I'm looking for this. And she just couldn't say anything. She just fell back because 
it was Queen Latifah who was asking for directions. And she was like, ah, ah, and she just couldn't get words out, right? So, so we've all been in those, maybe you haven't, but, but we can imagine being in those situations when someone famous, like, just rolls up and you're just taken aback. You just kind of step back and you're like, ah, ah. Well, that's sort of what's happening here, right? Only Jesus says, I am he. Jesus is using the language that God identifies him with in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. Like Jesus is sort of identifying that he is the God man. And at that, it's infinitely bigger than when Queen Latifah met our neighbor. They just stumble back. Well, you know, the, the narrative kind of goes, they, they, they collect themselves and then Jesus asks a second time. And you're like, why, Jesus, why are you asking a second time? Who are you looking for? And it becomes clear. He's saying that because he's saying, look who is on the arrest warrant. My name is not my disciples. Jesus is perfectly in control. Jesus is saying, I need to die. They need to testify. Let them go. Well, Peter, Peter, standing there, he's watching it. And Peter goes, not on my watch. He grabs, you know, a knife, a sword, whatever, uh, you know, a samurai sword or whatever. He grabs it and he just goes right for the closest person, I I imagine, and cuts off his ear. And you're like, yeah, Peter, good for you. Peter sort of reminds me of my college roommate. Uh, My college roommate was as Irish as you can be, Daniel Patrick Flynn. He had a dog named Dublin, okay? And all the stereotypes were just bound up in him, okay? And he was a great friend to have because he, he threw a punch first and asked questions later, okay? He just didn't even intuitively, right? If you, he was your friend and you were out and anyone said anything against me, it was on. And it didn't matter how big the guy was. It didn't matter that he was probably going to get beaten up. He would just throw the first punch. I think we sometimes think of Peter like that. Peter's just some Irish guy who just intuitively throws the first punch. But we're not meant to, like, look honorably at Peter. Jesus rebukes him. Look there at verse 11. It's clear that Peter, Peter isn't just acting foolishly. Peter is actually standing in the way of God's plan. Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Peter here is not just like, Foolish. Peter here isn't just ignorant. Peter isn't just aggressive to a fault. Peter was standing in the way of God's plan. And tragically, it's a plan that Jesus had been pretty clear on. He's been rolling out this plan to Peter over and over again. And yet, Peter, when it comes to this scene, was living on a river called Denial, right? He couldn't fathom that Jesus was about to get arrested. So all through verse 1 to 12, it, it looks like Judas is in control. I mean, Judas knows where he's at. J- Judas betrays him. Jesus gets arrested. And Judas, I mean, he, he gets some ducats in the mean. Like, he, he, he gets not rich, but, he, he, you know, the bank account goes up. Things are looking good for Judas from one perspective. Judas is in control. And then it looks like the soldiers. Verse 12, it says the soldiers arrest him. They, they, they put Jesus in cuffs and they march him to the court. And Peter, Peter sort of looks like he's in control, right? I mean, Peter looks out and it's like, okay, it's 100 to 1, but like, I'll go down with a blaze of glory like an old Western. Good for you, Peter, right? But all of them are wrong. 
They all grab or seek to seize control of the situation, but all of them, none of them, are actually in control of the situation because none of them can thwart God's redemptive plan. Do, do, do you see? Do you see the ends to which God would accomplish his, or do you see the means to which God would accomplish his own ends? Sometimes maybe we look at Jesus' life and we think, wrong place, wrong time. Poor Jesus. Or, or we might think like, oh, he was just a, an accident of history. If he'd just been born another time, maybe, maybe this wouldn't have happened to him. And yet, this text is really clear. Jesus does not die by way of accident. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is, this is in one sense what I really want to impress upon you. Jesus didn't die by way of accident. This is the plan all along. I think sometimes we think of it as just an accident. But here, Jesus dying was not just a bad roll of the dice. It wasn't that Jesus lacked control of the situation. He died for the precise reason that he was in control. He steps up. God sends his own son, and he steps up in human history, doesn't leave anything to chance, and he steps up to die in the place of sinners. That's the ends to which God would accomplish the means of securing a people for himself. He leaves nothing to chance. And if you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, I think one of the applications for us this morning is we're meant to marvel at at the reality of this. We're, We're meant to just be swept away in the reality that Christ left nothing up to chance. There is a true sense in which we ought to mourn the reality that Jesus had to die because of our sin. He had to, he had to die in our place. He, he had to, as verse, uh, verse 12 or verse 11 talks about, he had to drink the cup of wrath. There is a sense in which we could be mournful in the reality that Jesus did that for us. He had no guilt within himself. He was an innocent. He was a, a pure, unblemished lamb. And yet, in another sense, we are meant not to feel sorry for Jesus, as if this was just some divine child abuse. Or like, oh, Jesus was just manipulated into dying. Jesus died for us with a smile on his face. He died willingly, joyfully, purposefully. He died intentionally because that was the way, it was the only way for God and man to be at peace. He did this. And I think we're meant to just stand back and marvel at it. This is why, Christian, we should be, among all things, a thankful people. Well, second, so Jesus steps forward in the garden. The pieces are falling into place. But now, starting in verse 13, we move to a new scene. We move to the court. So, verse 13, all the way to verse 27. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered Jesus into the he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servant of the officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples' teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, It was I, what, uh, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about what is wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not uh, one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it at once. The rooster crowed. So Jesus is taken now to the religious high court of the day. And Jesus first visits Annas. Now, it's kind of confusing. A little history might make us understand kind of what's going on. Uh, Caiaphas is the high priest that year. It's, it's clear here. So he is the high priest, but Annas is his father-in-law, and Annas actually, in one sense, is the true high priest. He, he was, you could think of it this way, the godfather of all the high priests. Rome kind of dethroned Annas and put Caiaphas as the high priest, but when it comes to who was actually the sort of godfather religiously, it's, it's Annas. And so if they want to to kind of pass one on Israel. If they want to get Jesus uh, executed, they got to go through the Godfather, right? They got to go through Annas. And so that's what we see them do. They bring Jesus to Annas. And so Jesus shows up in handcuffs to the religious sort of Supreme Court. And instantly, the details of John make it clear, this is no real court. This is a fabricated court. No justice is going to actually come at this court. This is a kangaroo court. We know that because it's clear that it's night and they didn't convene court at night. So the procedures are all wrong. But then verse 19, Annas begins to question Jesus, which also is out of order. So, so our court system works similarly to this too. But, but in, in the first century, you would bring someone in who's accused of a crime and they would not testify on their behalf. And so you'd have a witness for and a witness against. And so they'd ask the witnesses, so did you see this person do this? And they'd say, this is what happened. And then you'd ask this person on this side, this is what happened. That's how a proceeding took place. Not here, right? Annas just looks at Jesus and begins to question Jesus, which is why in one sense, Jesus responds in the same way. Jesus basically says, I- I'm not teaching in secret, Right? So starting this in verse 20, I, I, I publicly taught um, in the synagogues. All these Jewish people were there when I taught. I've said nothing in private that I haven't said in public. So you go find witnesses to testify that uh, among these charges. 
Like, basically, Jesus is saying, um, not only is this court out of order, he turns to the, the most important spiritual religious authority, this man, Annas, and he looks him straight in the face and says, you're out of order. Which sort of makes sense as to what that soldier does, right? Like, the, everyone knows what's going on. He walks straight up to Jesus and slaps him across the face and says, like, how dare you speak to him that way? But Jesus is clear. He's pointing out the reality that the, 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 this whole thing is just manufactured. This is not a true court. Injustice is taking place. It's at night. It's, the procedures are out of order. Jesus is calling for a witness. He's calling for a witness because this is how it would take place. This is how justice was made sure that, you know, in a, in a fallen, broken world, this is the way in which Israel would make sure that justice was happening. Jesus is saying, can I get a witness? And you're like, I just wish there was someone who could actually testify on behalf of Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? If there was someone who, who was just there, who knew Jesus, someone who maybe walked with Jesus, someone who could actually say, this is who Jesus is, this is who he taught. If only there was someone who was with Jesus, who could testify and witness about Jesus. There is, isn't there? Peter and an undisclosed disciple. They're there. The undisclosed disciple who's there, I think, is probably John. They're there. And Jesus is saying, can I get a witness? And you're like, all right, Peter, here's your moment. Here's your moment to testify on behalf of Jesus. Here's your moment, John, to walk into the courtroom and say, this is who Jesus is. And what happens? Go back to verse 15. Peter's there. Let's call this other disciple, probably John. They're there. And a girl, a girl is like, hey, aren't you? Aren't you one of his disciples? Peter's pretty scared at this moment. He's like, nah, not me. No way. Then if you go down to verse 25, Peter asks again, or Peter's asked again basically the same question. Hey, aren't you, aren't you that guy who, who's with Jesus? He's like, no, not, not me. No, no way. And then it gets even more intense. Verse 26, there's this detail involved. This, this man walks forward and says, hey, weren't you in the garden with Jesus? And then it just says, he was a relative of the person who, you know, Peter went all Edward Scissorhand on earlier. So you can just imagine, he's like, oh gosh, like I know my Old Testament. Eye for an eye, this guy's about to go ear for ear. What's Peter going to do? He's backed into a corner. Once, twice, this seems inevitable. So Peter just distances himself from Jesus. What what Peter should have done is walked into that courtroom and testified. Instead, what Peter does is he does testify, doesn't he? He testifies that he doesn't know Jesus. That's the tragic testimony of Peter. And Peter is, we make Peter into a cautionary tale, which, which is fine. In some sense he is, but, but he's a cautionary tale in a, few, in a few ways. All of us can relate to Peter because all of us have kept our mouth shut, have been silent because we were too afraid to speak. The cost was too high. It would be too awkward at that dinner party. 
there are these moments in which we're like, oh, here's an opportunity to testify to who Jesus is. And we think, ah, the risk, the risk is too high. And so we look at Peter and we're like, hey, man, I get it. Been there, done that. But I think there's another way in which Peter isn't just a cautionary tale. Peter is really good news for us. Because in just two chapters, in John chapter 21, Peter is going to be restored. That's what John chapter 21 is all about. Jesus is going to restore Peter. And why does he need to restore Peter? Because he's going to commission Peter and therefore commission all of us. And what is the commission? What is our mission? What is our purpose? Well, you you guys know it. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right? Jesus, right before the ascension, so Jesus dies, he rises from the grave, victorious. He, he, he spends, um, you know, a couple weeks with his disciples. And then right before he's ascended on high, he says this, you are going to be my, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's Pentecost. That's Acts 2. And you will be my witnesses. Isn't that interesting? You're going to testify. And you're going to do it in Jerusalem, you're going to do it in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. Jesus is in the court. Jesus, as it were, is in the dock. And the church's job is to stand forward and witness, to stand forward and testify that Jesus really is who he says he is. Jesus really accomplished that which he set out to accomplish. Our job, our purpose in our families, our marriages, Our work, our communities, is nothing short of witnessing, testifying, just explaining, maybe not all the details, but just saying, yeah, this is really who Jesus is. And so, in one sense, Peter is a cautionary tale because, you know, we're like, man, you betrayed Jesus in a really, really horrible way, but it's also a cautionary tale to remember the types of people that Jesus uses. He uses people who betray him. Like every time we sin, it is in one sense a betrayal. That's the nature of sin in all of us. Sin is just a betrayal of God's goodness. It's saying, I know better. I know it will bring me own, my own happiness. And so I'm going to turn from you, God, and I'm going to turn to something else. And yet even in the midst of that, God enters in and says, I can still use you as he used Peter. So that's the courtyard. We we had the garden, the courtroom, and now we've got the embassy. Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. We'll call it an embassy. It was earlier earlier in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? So they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to them, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the words that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you not king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do not say, do you say this on your own accord 
Or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to them, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, No, not this not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So the religious leaders take Jesus. He's now finished with this sort of sham of a, of a hearing. And they take him to Pilate, to this sort of headquarters, to this embassy, because they know they need Pilate in order to execute Jesus. And so they come, they don't even want to go in, right? They don't want to get defiled so they can't do the Passover. So they're like, hey, we're going to step outside. Here's this guy and Pilate's like, who the heck is, I mean, you just sense Pilate's annoyed, annoyed at this whole situation, right? He's like agitated. He's like, who is this guy? Like, why are you bringing me to him? And they're like, we're bringing him to you, not because he's a great guy. We're bringing him to you because he's evil. And we need you to do your job, Pilate. We need you to, and then they tell him exactly what, they want him to do. We want you to execute him. So, so he does. He, he goes, I'll take the case. I'll hear the case. And then we see this sort of interrogation in verses 33 through verse 38. So the first question the pilot asks is just, right? He, he cuts right to the chase. Are you a king of the Jews? That was the charge. And so you're like, okay, how is Jesus going to answer this? Because he's got a few options. Okay, he's asking you, are you a king of the Jews? And if Jesus says, yep, I'm king. Well, instantly what Pilate is thinking about as it relates to a king, he's thinking uh, as a king in the sense that, oh, Jesus is like a gorilla, a gorilla fighter. And in many ways, the Jewish people invented gorilla, gorilla warfare back in the Maccabean revolt. So he's like, are you one of those? Are you, are, 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 is this going to be an insurrection? Is that what is going on here? And so if Jesus says yes, he, he's telling the truth, but it's truth that Pilate would go, oh, so you're that kind of king. And Jesus wants to make it clear he's not that kind of king. But if he says no, no, I'm not a king, well, that's, that's not truthful as, as well, because he's already said, I am a king. So, so how is he going to answer? Well, we, we, we see it. We see it as we keep going. Jesus sort of turns the tables and says, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you about it? Basically, he's saying, I know my rights. These are not the Miranda rights, but these are different types of rights. I know my rights. And hearsay, not admissible in court. So are you saying this because you just heard something or did you actually bear witness to the reality that I'm this sort of king? Like, what did I ever say that would make you come to the conclusion that I'm that kind of king? That's basically what 
Jesus is saying in response. And Pilate gets irritated once again. He's like, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Like, and then Jesus responds rather cryptically, doesn't he? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting or would fight so that I should be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, Pilate, you only have one view of a king here. A king and a kingdom is one and purchased and defended by the sword and violence. That's your view, Pilate. You can think of nothing else other than a king who would conquer by way of a sword. Jesus is like, that's not the kind of king I am. My kingdom will not come through violence. My kingdom will not come by way of the sword. I am not the sort of king that is seeking to overthrow Rome. That's why he says, that's not, that's not my kingdom. My kingdom is of another place. Meaning my kingdom not only comes by other means, my kingdom is in essence different than all other kingdoms. And Pilate has no paradigm for this. He's only seen kingdoms ruled and won by way of violence, by way of the sword. So, Jesus basically, finally, at the end, as he, as uh, Pilate finally is like, so you're saying that you're a king? And then finally, when he says, oh, so it's a king, but it's a different type of king, Jesus finally says, yes, I'm that kind of king. I'm a different type of king. But my kingdom is like a third sense. So the Jewish leaders wanted a king, but they wanted a king to overthrow Rome. Pilate was afraid that that's the kind of king that would come, that Jesus was. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm a different type of king. I'm a royal king. I'm the sort of king that the Old Testament would wink at, the Old Testament prophetically spoke of. I'm that king that would come, that would bring a new kingdom that was not of this world, a kingdom that would deliver people out of darkness and the bondage of sin into a new glorious kingdom. I'm that kind of king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one king who has come that is going to change everything. Jesus says this, and do you see the tragedy of what Pilate says? He just goes, what is truth? Jesus has come as the Messiah to testify to the truth, and Pilate goes, what is truth? And what he's basically saying is, it doesn't matter what the truth is. At the end of the day, I could care less about what the actual truth is. I don't care. Like, justice is not blind in Rome. I don't care. I just want you off the books. I need, I need the Israelites to behave. They need me to behave. We've got this, like, weird balance and ecosystem going on there. I don't care about what the truth is. I don't care what you're saying. I just need to get rid of you. He says, what is truth? We live in a world that asks that question often, right? What is truth? We relativize truth. Ah, that's just your truth. You ever gotten a conversation about that? Uh, like, there, there is nothing, and maybe it's my personality, there is nothing that emotionally gets me more riled up when someone just says, that's your truth. Like, or is just like, oh, or, who doesn't care about truth? Because all Christians at all times can agree. We have lots of disagreements, but we can all agree about this, that there is truth. That truth is 
objective. That what you feel isn't the most important thing in your life. Oh, well, I feel this way. Well, sure, feelings are important. My feelings are crazy often. Like, if I just listened to my feelings, I would never get up into this pulpit and preach. Never. I would just listen to my, and be like, I don't know, March Madness sounds more fun in this moment than, than coming up here and I don't know what's going to happen. I could blank out for every moment. I might say something wrong. Like, it's a scary thing to speak in public. Our feelings often, if they get the best of us, can paralyze us. Christians believe in objective truth, and yet, how do we come to it? How, how do we understand it? As we navigate this world, as we're trying to discover what is truth, this is why we need God's word. I mean, the, the irony in all this situation is, uh, Pilate is like, what is truth? And truth incarnate is standing in front of Pilate. Literal truth right in front of Pilate, and he doesn't see it. Well, we don't have truth incarnate standing right before us in that sense. But we do have truth incarnate every time you open up your word. Every time you open up God's word, that is truth. So, so as you're navigating this world and there's all of these conversations about what is truth and your truth and this truth, and you're getting, I think, if you're anything like me, getting riled up in all of these sort of conversations and culture, let me just encourage you. Far more important than getting riled up in the, the, the debate over truth, is to just saturate yourself in this truth. To saturate yourself in the wisdom of truth. Because as you do, it's not just that you, you're sort of meta-narrative, that the, the story of the Bible becomes real to you, but something else happens is that you become wise. And then you become wise in those situations when you're like, oh, I should give a response to you for the hope that is within you, right? That's the New Testament. It says that somewhere. I don't remember where. But then it also says, do not put pearls before swines. So when do you speak the truth and when do you not speak the truth? Wisdom. And to the extent that you're saturated in God's word is the extent to which we can navigate the question, what is truth? Well, the, the, the unfortunate thing in this is how it ends. Chapter 18 ends. I almost don't even need to reference it because you know how it's going to end. All along, we've been marching towards the end of this. Jesus is fully in control. He's going to the cross. Pilate walks out, goes to the religious leaders and like, I find nothing wrong with this guy. And he's like, hey, and I'm going to give you a loophole. I'm going to give you an out and you can save face. Okay, it's the Passover. I've agreed that I'm going to let one person out of jail. I'll give you this guy. And they're like, thanks but no thanks. Hard pass. And the sort of tragic irony is they want Barabbas. <laughs> so, so why do they want Barabbas? I mean, he's a robber or he's a domestic terrorist. He, he is the type of man who is seeking to overthrow. And yet they're like, that's who we want. And in some tragic way, I think what's going on here is that they're saying, We'd rather have Barabbas because Barabbas, we can control. We have a paradigm for Barabbas. We understand Barabbas. We can sort of mitigate, and if he goes off the thing, well, he'll put him in jail again. Like, that's fine. We're, we're okay with him. But Jesus, he's like Aslan, right? He's, he's a lion. He's, he's not a tamed lion. 
We're all seeking control. We all want control. I love to be in control. But there's another word for control freak. Sin. And yet when Jesus steps into the stage of human history in the incarnation of Jesus, he is fully in control. He's marching to the cross. He's marching towards Good Friday, which will then end in Easter and then end in the ascension and then end in his second coming. We can't stop the plan. Peter, Judas, the soldiers, Pilate, Annas, Caiaphas, all of them tried to stop what they thought was the plan. All of them just played right into God's hand, did they not? The best that we can do isn't stop God's plan. The best we can do is surrender to any notion that we are in control of the plan and willingly, joyfully join in it. And it's simply this, and I'm going to end with this. It's simply this, to do what Peter ought to have done, to do what John ought to have done, to just bear witness. God, we uh, thank you for, we thank you that we in our sin, we in our desire to be in control could not thwart your plan to redeem a people for yourself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we enter this, as we're experiencing this, this Holy Week, we're marching to Easter and Good Friday. Lord, we're reminded once again that we are so praiseful and thankful for your son's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and right now his current ministry on our behalf, interceding for us. Lord, we pray that you would work in our lives such that we would be drawn to you. We pray, Lord, that we would, we would understand in a greater, deeper, more profound way your love for us. Lord, we, we pray that this season we would come to an end of ourselves and that we would joyfully give up any perception that we are in control, knowing that you are far better and that you reign and rule as king. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.